Welcome to RA Edge. I am Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa Connect. And we are thrilled to have a very special guest here today, Jeff Concepcion, the founder and CEO of Stratos Wealth Partners. Jeff, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for the invite, Mark. Well, very much looking forward to getting into all aspects of your growth and success. You've been one of the fastest growing RA firms out there. And we were looking at firms and individuals that we wanted to talk to. You are right at the top of the list and not just because of the lovely singing voice uh, that I've heard so much about. I mean, hopefully we get a preview of during the podcast, but did, did, my now... good look, did my good looks and charisma put me towards the top of that list as well? That would make me feel encouraged, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, th- that'll be, uh, <laughs> that'll be when we go video and we're all back in person and we can do the face-to-face again. But for now, we'll stick with the story behind your growth. You being at roughly $19 billion in assets under management and growing significantly over the years through M&A and really smart strategic organic growth. We felt like you've got a great story to tell and our audience would benefit tremendously from learning a little bit more about all your different strategies and tactics. Before we get into that though, Jeff, if you don't mind Could you provide a a brief background just on the history and the formation of Stratos so we're all grounded and understand exactly all the elements of your business and what you're focused on? Yeah, that would be great. All all of my partners and peers tend to get nervous when that question gets asked because I typically start by saying that I got broomed by the firm that I spent 23 years with. And it wasn't that I was so entrepreneurial. It was that I was basically shown the door, which was a godsend. And I'm grateful that happened in late 2008. And it's a complex conversation for another day, but needless to say, it was the launch the launch pad for us to form Stratus. So we opened our first office in February of 2009, tremendous time when the market was plugging along. Actually, it was just the beginnings of the market recovering from the crash of 2008. And we had a very inauspicious first year when I lost probably close to $100,000 a month with the field of dreams theory, build it and they will come. We built it and they came, but more slowly than we anticipated. So it was a little bit of a rough launch, but we've been really fortunate and really blessed since then. The notion was that we could create a supported independence model that really had substance behind it. I felt that it was very much an overused term of giving people a soft landing pad or supported independence that most firms talked more about support than they were able to deliver. So if we could substantively deliver, that should be a catalyst for growth and We've been very fortunate with 100 plus, I'm not sure exactly how many locations we have today since February of 2009, that this concept of supported independence and being a platform partner is something that the marketplace would would benefit from. And, and hopefully the results have proven that. I appreciate it. you do have a very unique model. So I would like to start there and also you focus a bit on your M&A because you've been very, very active. Can you describe the business model right, for Stratos and the various businesses that you have? And then also in the context of the M&A discussion, there's so many different types of you know, buyers and acquirers out there. I'd be curious to hear how you describe and position Stratos. Yeah, absolutely. So what we started off as was a platform partner for what I believed were advisors who wanted to go independent, but didn't really fully understand what that even meant. They might've taken for granted what JP Morgan or Merrill Lynch or some of these other firms had done for them and all the stuff that happens behind the scenes for someone who's running a successful business. So the notion was if we could be much better stewards of our capital and allow them to take the lion's share of the revenues that they generated, that with scale, we could do all those things that the big firms were doing for them, but do them far more efficiently and frankly, do them even better than than the support that they'd received previously. And that was kind of that initial concept 
there were two pieces to it for folks who were independent enough that they would hire their own staff and sign their own leases uh, and really cover all those fixed costs. We would pay them a fairly significant rate on average at somewhere in the mid 80s. And for folks who wanted us to take down the real estate and the staffing and oversee a lot of those fixed costs, those folks ended up in the upper 60s on a blended basis, which was well north of a 50% increase with more autonomy, more independence, and really running and owning their own business. We delivered what the big firms were delivering to them at a fraction of the cost. And the type of stuff that we that we would do was whether we signed the leases or consulted on the real estate, HR, benefits, billing, practice management, asset management, technology, all those types of infrastructure things that really are out there and need to get done, but don't really directly relate to the day-to-day engagement that an advisor has with their clients. So that was really the baseline business, trying to provide all the stuff that the big firms provided better and more efficiently by being good stewards of our capital. Excellent. And then when you're looking at, and you just mentioned just almost this idea of sort of reinventing independence. And when you're talking with firms, whether it's acquisition or any other advisor or you know, firm that would benefit from being part of the Stratos family, so to speak, what are some of the specific problems that you find you're solving for most frequently in the market right now? Relative to an advisor affiliating or relative to someone who's starting to think about monetization? So let's look at it through both, actually. So someone who's starting to monetize and someone who's looking to affiliate. Yeah. So just continuing that trend of affiliation, and then we can flip towards succession. On the affiliation side, I just think that, and and maybe this is sort of telling. So I assume that people, it's sort of an easy sale if you're coming out of a wire or bank to, to think about supported independence. What I really didn't anticipate is all the folks who went independent, not fully understanding what it meant. So Mm. roughly a third of our folks who've affiliated were entirely independent. They formed their own firms. They formed their own RIAs. And I think they found themselves wearing so many hats that it was dilutive to what their primary job was because the ancillary jobs took up so much bandwidth. So nearly a third of the folks who've affiliated with us have gone from solely independent to supported or collaboratively independent inside of a network like ours. And it's just, it's all the stuff, whether it's the the regulatory or the technology or the ops or the HR or the benefits, there are just lots of areas I think that eat into and preclude them from being as successful on what really drives a business's value. And that's client engagement, client retention, and the addition of, of new clients. I think what advisors struggle with on the succession and monetization side And that was my last conversation today. We had a firm visiting from Boston. I was with a firm in New Jersey yesterday having a conversation. It's flexibility. I think Mm -hmm. our calling card, and it could be our detriment in some respects, depending on how you view this, or our most valuable asset when you think about monetization, is I had to talk to 50 people, 100 people relative to succession to realize that only one in 10 were ready to sell, but eight out of 10 were worried about protecting their employees, protecting their clients, and protecting their families. And that flexibility of saying, we really don't have a deal, but tell me what you're trying to solve for, and let me share with you whether or not we can help along the way. So maybe they want to do a partial event now. Maybe they want some of their employees to be involved in ownership. Flexibility, I think, became a real catalyst to us having Uh, much deeper and much more productive conversations more often than just the one in 10 folks that were ready to sell at that time. Right. No, I appreciate you breaking down both categories there. It just gives some really uh, exceptional context for your business. When we're looking at the M&A and the monetization side, curious, you've been very active. What does the ideal acquisition target look like for Stratos? And that could be 
it was size or location, but it could also be culture and personnel as well. I'm curious what the perfect firm is for you all. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So I'll define it sort of at the enterprise level, which is one thing. But when you think about those 100 plus locations, it makes us unusual. We have a signed letter of intent on a four plus billion dollar acquisition. And there's probably not a day that goes by when I'm not talking to one of our partner offices about a 40 or 50 million dollar asset acquisition. So when I think about acquisitions for Stratus at the partner level, I think most of our partners are comfortable buying books anywhere from 50 to a few hundred million. In some cases, mm-hmm. our best offices could acquire stuff larger than that. And my premise when we initially got into M&A was helping our folks, our same store sales growth so that they could grow inorganically and be effect- more effective at M&A with our help than they could be without us. The other premise was I never want to compete with the people that I'm built to serve. At the same time, we recognize that most of our folks as buyers and most of the marketplace as sellers, once you get to two, three, 400 million in assets, they may not be super comfortable selling to someone who's similar in size or even Mm -hmm. smaller. So maybe there's a level where we can be the direct buyer rather than a facilitator for one of our partner offices and not compete with the people that we're serving. So I would tell you today that most of the stuff that we're looking at buying would be three to $400 million up to three to $4 billion in assets, and probably in the five, six, seven, $800 million range on average for us, where our partner offices are typically acquiring at the $100 million level. As far as the attributes, there aren't a lot of geographic limitations with us being in over 100 cities and being willing to go other places where it makes sense. It's really more the cultural, philosophical, quality, regulatory attributes that make us more or less interested. Yeah. And I appreciate that as well. There aren't a lot of firms that have this sort of dual M&A strategy. And it makes a lot of sense when you describe it the way you did as to why you're growing at the rate that you are. Just one final question on the M&A side before we shift gears and start to talk about the organic growth a bit too. I am very curious, when you're evaluating a direct acquisition or you're working with one of your partners to evaluate an acquisition opportunity, how are you assessing the quality of a firm's growth? And I'll just qualify the question by saying, there've been a lot of firms that have grown quite a bit over the last five to 10 years, but how do you know if they're growing by design versus default? And if you can be additive to them post-acquisition? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And, And to make sort of a broad stereotypical comment, I don't think most are growing substantially greater than the market. So a lot, I think, have done a nice job with a client service model and they've retained and they get the occasional referrals, but most of the lift that they've had in revenue, most of the firms that I see in the industry, and this is four out of five days a week on the road with five meetings a day. So there's there's a pretty good data set or sample set behind this anecdotal comment. Most are not really great at growing. When you find the ones that are, it's worth paying more. So I find that in general, most firms don't have a really well thought out strategy to grow. They're relying on the market. They're relying on retention. They're relying on doing a decent job with referrals, but most aren't great growers by nature. And, and uh, I think that is the the perfect <laughs> plug for RA Edge and why people need to listen to this podcast, because that's really what we're trying to uncover here. And it's a great opportunity you know, to also educate people about what you've been doing, right? To really drive intentional growth, at the parent, the, whole, the holding company direct level, but also for your partners. So if you wouldn't mind, can you maybe just when we're talking about organic growth, can you just 
define organic growth. And by that, I mean, how you think about growth at for, for Stratos. Yeah. So if I think about organic growth at the partner level, when I look at one of our affiliated firms or our offices, we're talking about an advisor or business owner, the advisor as a business owner, as it relates to client acquisition. So I think there are two facets for the advisor that I would throw in the organic category. And one would be the equivalent for them of same store sales is a greater wallet share with an existing household and the addition of new households, be it through referral or through third-party relationships with law firms or accounting firms or seminars or whatever type of business development, social media, whatever type of business development that they're doing. The inorganic growth for them would obviously be an acquisition. If I speak about that at the enterprise level, the way I look at organic growth for us in same-store sales wouldn't be more wallet share from a new client, but it would be the growth of existing offices. If we have an office that continues to grow its revenues, that's really organic growth growth for us. And inorganic growth would be helping our office to grow through acquisition, through the addition of new offices and new firms. And we have a whole business development team that focuses on new locations. And whether it be the two thirds that I described as sort of breakaway teams, or one third that are already independent and looking for supported independence. And then the other side of the team that's run by Lou Camacho and Stratos Wealth Enterprises, which is strictly our M&A efforts. A lot of those efforts are towards us being direct acquirers. And then a fairly good amount of the effort that that team puts forth is to help our partner offices acquire as well. Excellent. And I'm curious, I've been very familiar with the firm from a distance. I've seen a lot of the marketing that you've done, a lot of the content that you've created. I'm familiar with the podcast, the Evolving Advisor podcast, which is a really excellent piece of multimedia. I'm curious, there are not a lot of firms that have been as prolific and produced as much targeted content and marketing that you have. I mean, one, how do you actually find the time to do all of this, right? And two, how much has it contributed to your organic growth? You know, it's a great question that you asked that. And it's very funny because I think COVID got us all to sort of think about what we're doing and, and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. We have lots of our partner offices that say that they want to acquire, but they don't know. And these are really good people, by the way, many of them running really good businesses, but there's a disconnect between sort of wanting and doing so if I thought about all the places that I go and how often I fly and how many meetings I have and how many frogs that I have to kiss in order for that yeah. one princess to manifest, I probably wouldn't do any of the things that I do. But it's kind of this collective effort on the margin, never really knowing what's going to pay off or not, that I think has benefited the growth. So when, when I look back, this firm that we just uh, made a, a press release on, five or $600 million, a great group of young guys called uh, Summit Wealth out of Orlando and Naples. They came from the podcast. We had a terrific, terrific project that we're working on that came from me speaking to, I think, 30 or 40 firms where I dragged along in, in tow with Mark Tiburgeon that were half billion or billion dollar firms or greater. The topic was evolving from an advisor to a CEO. One of the people sitting in the audience at the Chicago workshop that we did was a $4 billion shop that engaged in dialogue afterwards. I visited with them several times with no expectation of anything other than to be a friend and share some thoughts. And we're now likely to, uh, on the cusp of taking a majority stake in the shop. We invested and purchased another shop with someone who read an article that I wrote and had just called to ask some questions. So on the margin, I, I think the basic notion is you're not going to get hit unless you're in traffic. So the more things you do to put yourself in traffic, the more likelihood you're going to have of you know achieving the outcome. Because I probably wouldn't do 
the podcast or travel or speak. I did probably 100 workshops in 12 months prior to COVID for ETF and mutual fund companies. And there are just 45 minute to one hour workshops on succession and valuation and, and so on. The, the bodies and the goodwill that come as a result of that are tremendous. Maybe it'll only be two or three transactions, but I've also had five years pass where someone says, geez, I sat in on this workshop or you took a random phone call and were really helpful and now X is happening or Y is happening. So I think it's kind of the cumulative effect of sort of pushing yourself to engage in as many mediums as possible that ultimately pays you know, really nice dividends. Yeah, I appreciate that context too. It reminds me years ago when I was talking to an advisor who very prolific on Twitter and my podcast, actually said, how do you find the time to meet with any of your clients? And his response was, if I talked with every one of my clients every day, that would be totally inefficient. I could write one blog and all of them can read it and get my point of view on a market event or some other position. And it was an interesting way of looking at it. And I appreciate you sharing that it's actually led to material M&A you know, opportunities for you. Uh, how is that what you were expecting or is it sort of a pleasant surprise? I would say, and not, not to get goofy, but I think it's sort of a, a karmic thing. The more you put yourself, so I love when I'm on the phone, which I'm on constantly or traveling and people say, geez, I didn't expect the founder of the firm to call. I know that you're a fairly large shop. To me, it's not a big deal to other people that it, it, it matters. So I love the, and people say, why are you doing these workshops? They don't understand. If Wisdom Tree, who's been a great partner on the workshops as an example, mm -hmm. we, we, we were in two or three cities last week. We were in Naples, just two, Naples and Fort Lauderdale. And we did the workshops. And sometimes I don't want to say combative, but people are like, why are you here? I love the industry. I love educating people. I love sharing what I've learned, not because I'm knowledgeable, but because I've had a fair amount of experience. And there's almost a disconnect. And so what do you get out of it? And my concept is I like to make new friends. And over time, it's not a bad thing to have a lot of friends in the industry. You don't go into it with any expectation, but if you educate, if you share, and if you give, good things tend to happen. And I think we've been blessed far beyond or entitled to as a result of whatever we've given. I mentioned, I have to tell you this because it's funny, kissing frogs. So I, I, yesterday, driving between New Jersey and New York and Connecticut on appointments, I returned a phone call, and this happened to me twice in the last couple of weeks. I was down south 30 days ago on this $4 billion acquisition, and I excused myself for 10 minutes because someone responded to the website. And the way it got transcribed to me was 1.6 million. It was a TD, someone who had a practice at TD Ameritrade. So we're about eight or nine minutes into the conversation. I said, I apologize. I just wanted to say hello and schedule more time next week. And I know this is a stupid question, but it's 1.6 million in revenue, correct? And the advisor said, no, it's 1.6 million in assets. And I just checked off a box, one more frog, and that's one step closer to the princess that, you know, <laughs> but there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of calls that I make and a lot of things that I do that people probably wouldn't do if they realized, again, might be 90 frogs to one princess. But, you know, when you get a half dozen princesses over a course of a couple of years, it can become really, really meaningful. Oh, definitely. And I would say one of the other things I've observed about people who, whether they're podcasting or they're you know, creating content in the form of articles and videos, when you meet people, they already know you in a way, and you've been sort of you know, pre-qualified, if you will, right? So I can certainly appreciate you know, what it is that you have experienced. And I would also add that 
your content is good and it has to be good for people to really connect and engage with you. So congratulations on the success. There are not a lot of advisors that can share the success stories that you have. And I do just have one quick question on this uh, subject of marketing and content. You specifically, you know, mentioned the podcast and now that we're coming out of hopefully this remote world and you see people getting back to face to face, everybody obviously went virtual and was operating remote for 12 plus months. And how to sort of rethink the way they communicate with clients and prospects. What do you think we'll retain and take with us when we get back to or have the opportunity to do, quote unquote, normal business development and in-person types of meetings? Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of learnings. Part of what we learned is thanks to our infrastructure, having eight or nine folks full-time in technology, which is pretty unusual. It's what I mentioned, the kind of a capital S with supported dependents versus a small S. We were able to go remote pretty easily without much disruption for, I don't know, 800 bodies, maybe more than 800. I'm not sure how many folks we have between our headquarters staff and all the partner offices. I think somewhere in the 750 to 850 range. Uh, I think people think differently about overhead and real estate and profitability. I think people think differently. I've always thought differently because of my blue collar upbringing. My mom and dad both worked in factories. So when we had a transaction with Emigrant who bought 16% of our equity a year ago, they were perplexed that we were as big as we were, that we were as many places we were, and we essentially had zero debt. The notion that I try to tell advisors, an advisor generates revenue and they make a living. A business owner generates revenue, pays himself a salary and has retained earnings. So for 10 years, we've retained 35% of our earnings. So when you think about going through market disruption, COVID, whatever could be dangerous to a business. Have you built a ship that can weather a turbulent storm or is it only great when the waters are calm and and the wind is at your back? And so as a business owner, I think we need to plan for what we want to become. We need to plan in anticipation that things may not always be the way that it is. And I think COVID taught us some new things and maybe reinforced philosophies that have been embedded for a long time. I do think real estate and overhead, I think flexibility, I think work remote, I wouldn't say that we're the most forward-thinking. Regrettably, I wouldn't say that we're the most forward-thinking company on work remote, but we're far more forward-thinking and flexible than we were pre-COVID. And it's just, again, all learning and, and gradual evolution. But I think there were some really good learnings and people were wildly effective with Zoom. I can tell you, I never stopped flying. I flew 150 mm. times over the last 12 months and transactions got done because people knew who they were dealing with in a different way when you break bread and eat than through Zoom. It's not that you can't connect through Zoom, but being across the table from someone, I do believe that there's an advantage to. I think I learned that I could do things remotely, but I also reinforce the fact that being across from someone is meaningful in a different way relative to establishing rapport and a connection and trust. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And as we're all getting back to a little bit more in person here, with the exception of you, it sounds like you've been pretty active. It, you, you're really starting to appreciate that face-to-face opportunity. And there are things you can do to be efficient using Zoom and Teams, but then there are reasons we do need to be together, particularly in a business like wealth management where trust is so important. So with that, Jeff, thank you very much for taking some time out to walk us through your M&A, organic growth, talk about your podcast and your experience there in more detail. Before we wind down here, is there anything else you'd add just on the subject of growth. Our audience is looking for advice, guidance, or different ways that they can be more intentionally approaching 
growth. So is there any final or closing thought that you have or piece of advice for our audience on how they could improve their overall growth rates? Yeah, one of the members of my study group, who's a terrific guy and, and a, a really uh, a good thinker, and I guess I've always thought this, but I've never articulated it in the way that he articulated it. If you want to grow, you have to have the capacity to work on your business, not exclusively in your business. And I think in order to do that, we when you think about what an advisor does when they start, when they're young in the, in the industry, they're wearing 15 hats. Well, at some point, it's got to be 13, 11, nine, and maybe at the end of the day, it can really only be one or two hats that they wear. I love, I can't tell you how many times I've sat across someone who built out an office and they had five extra offices because they just thought it would be easy to fill it with other advisors. It doesn't happen. People, I mean, I love the notion of someone showing up with their luggage saying, hey, this is great. Can I jump on board? But it, it needs to be intentional. If they want to acquire, it needs to be intentional. So to grow, I think advisors need to become more of a CEO delegate and really have a well thought out plan that they're putting their time and money and energy and resources into, maybe even hiring people with the intentionality of only being a catalyst to growth. And if they do that, you have to invest for the business that you want to be as, to, as opposed to the business that you are today. Investing ahead of the curve will drive growth, being a little less worried about how much you'll make in the next year or two, and realizing making a little bit less now could mean that you could really earn tremendously more down the road. It's that intentionality about growth and the actions connected to the desire that I think will be a, a great catalyst for anyone to grow their business long-term. And that's a great way to end. And thank you for just simplifying what is a really complex subject. And this idea of having, being in that CEO state of mind it's, you know, is really, really important. So I appreciate you leaving us with that thought. And thank you for joining us here, Jeff, today. I enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. By the way, that sounds like a Billy Joel song. Didn't he write a song called CEO State of Mind? And, <laughs> and if so, would you perhaps hum a few bars for us? Yeah, it, it's only performed at uh, trade shows and conferences. I, I don't think I've <laughs> seen it. I don't know that I want to see it, <laughs> but we'll see if we can get him out on the corporate circuit now that we're all getting it. back to face-to-face. -to -face. New, York, New York State of Mind has now become CEO State of Mind. Thanks to you. That'll be my next podcast. So thank you for the title. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mark. <laughs> All right. And Jeff, thank you very much again for sharing your time, your thoughts, and your insights with the RIA Edge audience here today. On behalf of Informer Connecting the Wealth Management Group, and my name is Mark Bruno. We look forward to having you all join us on the very next episode of RIA Edge. So thank you very much for being here today. Hope you found this very informative. And thank you very much again, Jeff, for joining us. My pleasure. 